Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Hi everyone, I'm Susie Gasper, a Community Programs Coordinator here at the State Library. This evening's seminar is held on the homelands of the Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I wish to acknowledge them as the traditional owners and to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I'm very pleased to welcome you all to the Policy Pitch, a joint initiative of State Library Victoria and Grattan Institute. I've been working with staff at Grattan over a number of years and it's always a pleasure. It's also an excellent and important addition to the library's programs and our collection. I'd like to give a warm welcome to tonight's speakers, Guy Dundas, Suzanne Falvey, Paul Austin, and Paul Austin. Yes, we have two Paul Austins on the panel tonight. <laughs> One is our moderator this evening. <laughs> 200,000 Victorian customers lost power on the 25th of January this year, begging the question, is this the new normal? I'm sure everyone here is keen to hear the answer to this question from our expert panel. Leading tonight's discussion is Paul Austin. Paul, editor at Grattan, worked for many years as a journalist and editor at Fairfax and News Corporation. He reported from the Canberra and Spring Street Press Galleries and was at various times deputy edit editor and opinion editor at both The Age and the Australian newspapers. He won a Quill Award for Best Deadline Reporting and was highly commended in the Walkley Awards for Best Feature Writing and the Quill Awards for Best Columnist. Please make Paul, Guy, Suzanne and Paul welcome. Thank you so much, Susie. And can I also welcome everyone to this policy pitch event at this fantastic forum, the State Library of Victoria. I would like to join Susie in acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. And I too pay my respects to their elders, past and present. As Susie mentioned, I'm one of the two Paul Austins on the panel tonight. I'm the editor at the Grattan Institute and I'm delighted to be joined on stage by three energy experts from my far right, industry analyst Guy Dundas, the market operator, Paul Austin, and the rule maker, Suzanne Falvey. I'll introduce the panel more formally soon, but before I do, let me briefly uh, outline the structure for this evening. Each of the panellists will give a brief presentation of about 10 or 15 minutes, which will leave about half an hour for questions from you, our audience members. We've already received a number of good questions from some of you sent in when you registered, and I hope to put some of these to the panel. But we certainly encourage live questions from the floor, so please be ready to put your hand up when that opportunity arrives. I should also mention that the Twitter handles and hashtag for this event are displayed on the screens around the room. So if you're inclined to live tweet tonight's discussion, feel free to do so. Okay, it's a big topic, 
there's a lot to debate, so let's get to it. Our first speaker tonight is the industry analyst Guy Dundas. Guy's a colleague of mine. He's a recent and very welcome addition to the Grattan Institute, where he's our energy fellow. I've quickly come to learn that there's nothing worth knowing about in the energy sector that Guy doesn't know. Guy has previously worked for, among others, the Productivity Commission, the Climate Change Authority, a range of consultancy firms, a range of government departments. And he is, most relevant to tonight, the co-author, with some of my colleagues in the audience tonight, of a new Grattan report on electricity reliability, which was released just last Sunday. You may have heard Guy interviewed about it on ABC Radio. You might have read his piece about it in the Herald Sun today. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Guy Dundas. Thanks, Paul, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. As Susie and Paul have both foreshadowed, I don't think there's any mystery as to why uh, we're having this event here and on the topic we are. Just two weeks ago, just over two weeks ago, 200,000 Victorians lost power on the 25th of January. And we shouldn't forget the night before, uh, on the 24th of January, the Portland aluminium smelter was also asked to reduce its load on the grid to keep the system in balance. Now, such a large event in the, in the midst of a heat wave in summer clearly provoked a lot of media and political debate, begging the question of tonight's topic, are summer blackouts the new normal? And we'll do our best to uh, both give you a sense of what happened on that day, and more importantly, a sense of whether these events will become more common in the future, and what the policy implications are for our governments and our regulators. So just to be uh, very clear about the nature of these events, Obviously, supply and demand in the electricity system need to be in balance, and if uh, on a very hot day, or as we saw on, on this occasion, where some coal units were unavailable, there's just not enough supply to meet demand, the only way the system can be kept in balance is by involuntarily turning some customers off. So on that Friday, uh, it was done on a rotational basis. So those 200,000 affected customers were off between the period of 12 and 3 p.m. on a rotational basis. As yet, we don't have full public information on who was off for how long, but we do know that roughly 200,000 customers were affected on a rotational basis. So clearly a big event and something we want to understand better. Now, I'd like to put it in its historical context. Events like this, so-called generation shortfalls or load shedding events, are very rare. Listed on the screen at the moment are the only five days in the last 14 years since the start of 2005 where this has occurred in Eastern Australia. So they certainly get a lot of attention when they happen, but we must remember, I think it's important for tonight's discussion to remember that they are very rare. Of course, we don't want them to come more common in the future and, and, and there are some, some uh, implications and things that governments need to do to, to help that remain the case. Now, the last such event in Victoria was almost exactly a decade ago. It was in that very hot summer, the early part of 2009 that actually led into Black Saturday. Uh, Customers across Victoria and South Australia were affected, over 200,000 on two consecutive days, the 29th and 30th of January, for about 40 minutes on average, again on a rotational basis. More recently, we saw um, a smaller event, 85,000 customers in South Australia for about half an hour, affected in February 2017. 
That also was quite controversial and led to the South Australian government procuring uh, backup generation, which I'll talk about in a moment. Um, but so clearly these effects, they last in the memory uh, and they, they have political and policy ramifications. Now I think it's worth highlighting also that, that one of the key factors leading to the events of January this year was going back just a couple of years, the closure of the Hazelwood Power Station. So the system isn't in a tight point at the moment. It has a, had a reduction in supply and that happened with quite short notice. So Hazelwood announced its closure uh, in November 2016 and closed in March 2017. And really we're still seeing the, the, the follow on effects from that. The market has been tight ever since and it takes time for new investment to, to bring on new supply and, and, and give us a bigger buffer against these sorts of events. So in a way it's not surprising that we, we had an event like that but it was that combination of uh, high temperatures and plant outages that saw it happen. Now just one last contextual point. Um, these events are rare. They also constitute a very small part of all the outages that occur across the supply chain. Um, Suzanne has a, a slide on that later on, so I won't, I won't spoil her thunder, but um, uh, very much less than 1% of all outages uh, occur due to generation shortfalls. So the report that Paul mentioned that, we, that uh, I recently put out with my colleagues Tony Wood and Lucy Percival looked at the whole supply chain. But tonight we're going to distill down, we're going to focus on these, these hot summer events, these generation shortfalls, and try to tell you whether, whether things are, have changed uh, for the worse or whether they're going to stay bad into the future. Now our view is that generation shortfalls are not the new normal, provided governments keep calm and carry on. So this report made some policy suggestions for what they should do to, to keep this the case and I'll touch on them in a moment. I think it's important to recognise when we do discuss whether generation shortfalls will become the new normal that we should, we should not be aiming to make them never happen. The risk of generation shortfalls being zero would imply a very high cost. We must try to balance the costs and benefits. We all like more reliability but we don't want our electricity bills or our taxes to go up necessarily to pay for 100% reliability. And I think a really useful case study, and there is a bit of detail on the screen which I'll talk to in a minute, is that example I mentioned before of the South Australian government's decision to invest in uh, backup diesel generation which followed on from their event in February 2017. Now the two-year lease of about 270 megawatts of <clears throat> generation cost the South Australian government $115 million and it got used for four hours. Now if you cut how that usage was broken down and, and these numbers are approximate but I think they're, they're, they're useful for the discussion today, really what we saw was if we hadn't had those generators, we would have had about 30% of South Australian households experience about one hour without power on a rotating basis in that four hour period. So put differently, is a cost of over $100 per taxpayer, uh, per household I beg your pardon, in South Australia, worth a one in three chance of avoiding a one hour outage every two to five years? Look, I think we can all make our individual judgments about that, but I'm not sure that South, the South Australian government would do again what they did do if they knew what they know now. And I'm not sure that the Victorian government should be rushing to follow their example. So I really do want to emphasise that point that we need to balance the costs and benefits of reliability. 
Now that 115 million was just the tip of the iceberg. They've since pur purchased those generators and uh, will incur further costs in operating and relocating those generators over their life. The total bill is going to be in the order of five to six hundred million dollars. Of course, we don't know what the benefits of that will be, how often it will be called into use, but um, I think the experience so far raises pretty significant questions about that particular um, investment and that particular government reaction to a generation shortfall. So let's look forward. Enough of the past, let's look forward. Now, the chart here shows um, the Australian energy market operators' uh, electricity statement of, of opportunities outlook on the electricity market, so um, Paul's organisation. Now, this is a document that looks at the state of the market and sees whether more generation is needed to uh, maintain reliability in the market. So the horizontal dash line there is the reliability standard that is set for the national electricity market. That's set at 0.002% of energy being unserved in any region of the national electricity market in any year. If we look forward and see that, that standard being breached, then we would say that there's a problem. If it's under there, then, then we start to say that the, the, we, then we would say the reliability standard is being met. Obviously, as we can see where Victoria is today, it's very, very close to that standard. So there's a, there is, in fact, a, a, an element of grey in that. But the persistent position above that um, dashed line that you see in, the, in the, um, the middle of next decade at face value looks concerning. I'm here to tell you that it's not that concerning. So this uh, outlook has a very specific purpose. By the dint of the rules, it can only consider generation investments that are currently in operation or are that are committed to be built, which is a very strict set of criteria about effectively there's a contract, a financial contract or a procurement contract to build that generator. So of course, looking out to 2024, 2025, we don't know what generators will be built yet, 100% for sure. So this is, if you like, a very conservative look at, at what um, is going on, what will be, in fact, um, happening in the market at that time by design. It's meant to signal that new investment is needed. And it shouldn't be seen as our base case of where the market will be at in the middle of next decade. Um, the market has delivered investment in the past, and we think with the right certainty from governments, it will also be able to deliver that investment in the future. Just to highlight one inflection point, I mentioned the Hazelwood closure before. That kick up in the uh, outlook for New South Wales in 2022 is related to the next major coal closure, that of the Liddell power station, which is flagged for March 2022. So that drives a lot of the results that you can see there. Now, if we do assume, as AMO did for its integrated system plan, which has a different purpose and is not bound by the same rules as the statement of opportunities, if we do assume ongoing investment, similar to the patterns that we're seeing today, then we see that the outlook is quite different. So clearly investment is key, and these are not unprecedented or, or, or um, you know, speculative levels of investment that are required to maintain reliability. So it clearly is achievable, but we do need to give investors a stable platform in which they can continue to deliver um, investments through the next decade. And of course, Liddell won't be the last coal-fired power station that closes. After that, we'll see Vales Point and potentially Yulorn here in Victoria and many others rolling through the next decades. So we need that stable investment environment to, um, to ensure that when those coal plants do retire, we can replace them with, with new assets and new investment. 
So a few arguments have been made as to why the investment environment is particularly challenging, and I'll, I'll give you a brief take on, on each of those and, and where we got to in our report and, and what the implications for government. So certainly, uh, gas-fired power stations are flexible and can be turned on to meet demand peaks. That's what we saw the last time the market was tight. But the gas, gas market has changed a lot since 10 years ago. We've seen gas exports from Queensland, prices have gone up a lot, and it is very difficult to get contracts to, to underpin new gas power stations. So that is potentially a risk to future investment and to the reliability of the market. We certainly acknowledge that. We didn't put forward a specific policy response to that. The gas market is a very complex beast, potentially a report in its own right, Tony. Um, but we think that players, uh, integrated players with a gas portfolio will be able to manage those risks, so it's not an intrinsic or, or show-stopping risk to, to reliability in our view. Now, one you hear a bit about is, is the volatility created by wind and solar, and perhaps the simple version of this is, you know, what are we going to do when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine? The answer to that is build flexible dispatchable generation. That may be gas and it may be hydro and also demand response. So users voluntarily um, turning down demand at very peak times are all potentially important responses to that volatility. But those investors do require certainty. So in and of itself, we don't think increasing levels of wind and solar are a problem, provided we can address the uncertainty in the investment environment. Which brings me to my next point, climate policy uncertainty. Now, if like me, you've been following this for the last 10 years, you're probably scarred and or sick of this issue, but unfortunately it doesn't go away. We've had chronic uncertainty for 10 years and it must be resolved. Investors are, are crying out for that certainty. And in our view, while the ideal policy might be an explicit carbon price, uh, we think that political realities take you to a, um, to a menu of second best solutions, um, all of which are perfectly satisfactory. And the most likely, uh, given the current environment, is almost certainly the national energy guarantee that was considered in detail last year, but not ultimately implemented because the Commonwealth Government uh, withdrew its support for that. Now, some governments certainly have focused on the perception that there is a reliability problem. We think that the problem really stems from this emissions issue and is not intrinsically a reliability problem. And so heavy-handed government interventions like underwriting new investment or pushing large projects like Snowy, Snowy 2.0, which is a government uh, a project from a government-owned company, actually are ineffective and poorly targeted uh, measures to address reliability. And in fact, they create uncertainty for those commercial investors who are looking to time the opportunities in the market for their own investments. So let's, uh, let's look at the case of Snowy 2.0. It's slated to start operations in late 2024. But as I mentioned before, Liddell closes in March 2022. So we've got this behemoth project coming down the line, but it's after the closure of Liddell. So that's going to make it very hard for someone to come in before and fill that market gap because they'll see they'll see this large project coming after them that would take their market away. So we see that these heavy-handed um, implementations, uh, projects and interventions can have unintended consequences, and we think the government should steer clear. And finally, we do acknowledge that there's a need for backup reserves. So you'll hear a bit more from Paul and Suzanne about a mechanism called the Reliability and Emergency Reserve Trader, or RERT, which was used on the 24th and 25th of January but was not sufficient to, um, to uh, eliminate all of the load shedding. 
Now, we do think this mechanism is important um, for unexpected events, a sudden technical failure at a, an old coal-fired power station, for example, but it does need to be finessed to balance costs and benefits, and that's something that Paul and Suzanne have been working on closely and, and I think will be well-placed to talk about. So to sum up, we think that the market is going through a difficult period, but it can get through it with investment, as it has delivered in the past, and really the key factor is for governments to deliver that certainty for investors. Thanks very much. Thanks, Guy. That's a terrific breakdown of what is often a complex and confusing debate. Our second speaker is Paul Austin from the Australian Energy Market Operator, or AEMO, the body that manages the electricity market. And yes, Paul happens to have the same name as me. So I should make it clear that we're not related, at least not to the best of our knowledge. To give Paul his correct title, his group manager, market monitoring and insights at AEMO. Basically, he runs our electricity market. Paul has previously worked in the wholesale and retail divisions of two of the big three energy companies, AGL and Energy Australia. And last year, he was seconded from the market operator to the newly formed Energy Security Board to work on the design of the National Energy Guarantee. He's at the very heart of energy policy in Australia, and I'm looking forward to hearing from him tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Paul Austin. Thank, thank you, Paul Austin. Uh, I've never had to say that before. Um, so uh, I think Guy did a, a good job of presenting the, the case for um, um, uh, Grattan there in terms of outlining the changing nature of the system and, uh, and the required sort of responses going forwards. Now one of the, um, one of the slides sort of talked about the, there's only been five days of load shedding in the, in the last uh, 14, 15 years since 2005. And I think that illustrates when you look at those days, the changing nature of the system. The NEM for many, most of its life has been quite oversupplied and reliability uh, hasn't really been a major issue and that's, and that's borne out in those statistics. But when you look back at the last couple of years, things have changed quite significantly. So in 2017, we had one official day of what's called unserved energy, USE, which is load shedding. Uh, we also had a day which is not reported as unserved energy, which was on the 10th of February in 2017 in New South Wales, where there was also load shedding. But because that day was due to a what's called a... Um, a contingency event where there is multiple trips of a particular generator uh, that gets scoped out of that reporting. But that, that was a day of load shedding. So we had two days of load shedding in 2017. Uh, in 2018, we had a couple of days, January the 18th, January the 19th, where we were very close to uh, load shedding in Victoria. And if we'd had a sort of uh, a one in 10 P10 style weather event, uh, we would have been looking at load shedding last year as well. And then we've had two days in this summer and hopefully no more. So if you look back at 17, 18, 19, we're looking at a, a quite a changed uh, system and quite a different risk profile. And, and this is the perspective which I'd like to bring to it. So if you look at uh, the actual um, uh, 
Bureau of uh, Meteorology's uh, anomalies, temperature anomalies for January 2019. This, this shows the deviation from the long-term average. And what you can see here is that uh, January was actually the hottest uh, January on record across Australia. And when you look at closely at the colours, you can see WA was not too hot and much of Queensland was not too hot. And there was a, a really concentrated heat spell over South Australia, uh, northern Victoria, and much of New South Wales and southern Queensland. And obviously we saw record temperatures in, uh, in parts of South Australia and New South Wales and uh, extreme uh, um, system conditions, harsh system conditions. And this is the, uh, the risks that we're now looking at in, in terms of the system. This was an extreme event, but in general, we've seen a, uh, a continuation of the warming um, trends that uh, is very apparent if you look at any uh, climate data. And so we can expect higher temperatures to be a, a factor in the future and, and a risk that we need to be managing. Uh, it's not just temperatures that uh, are a worry. Um, high temperatures can be coincident with bushfires. Bushfires affect uh, transmission lines, and even as recently as uh, the week before last or so, when uh, Tasmania's bushfires were at their height, we saw um, uh, Basslink having to be pulled back uh, because of the risk to uh, the transmission lines there. So this is something that we're managing in real time. And flooding, I mean, we've seen flooding in Townsville recently. Um, flooding is something can happen any time of year, obviously. When there is flooding, it can affect uh, if it's close to coal-fired power stations, coal supply through wet coal. So much, uh, much that we have to look at in terms of managing climate risk. Um, if we look at uh, what happened on, uh, on the 24th of Jan in uh, South Australia, so this was the Thursday and uh, it was the uh, almost record-breaking temperatures. So we had 47.7 degrees at Kent Town in Adelaide on this day, and very high demands, not record-breaking demands. Um, and during this day, we've, we, we can see here the uh, challenge of managing renewables and, and how we have to plan for renewables in the system. So the green shaded area and the yellow shaded area are the uh, wind and grid-scale solar, which is basically Bungala solar farm in South Australia. And you can see that where the peak demand is occurring, which is about 7 o'clock um, Eastern Standard Time, that is at the end of the solar, and so we're, we're getting a limited contribution from the solar. And as is quite common in these events, we're seeing a wind um, uh, derating during this time. So there's, there's correlation between the wind resources that we have in South Australia and Victoria, and when, when we have certain heat wave type conditions, we tend to see all of the wind sort of being reduced at the same time. And, and that obviously poses challenges for us in managing the system. The effect of rooftop PV is to, um, rooftop PV is netted off demand, so it's effectively behind the meter. What that does is the demand that we have to serve in the grid is effectively the net of that, and that's, that gets pushed forward into the evening as the amount of rooftop PV has increased. So we used to see system peaks sort of in the mid-afternoon in South Australia. That's sort of now moved to the evening, and we get a much steeper um, climb in the peak as we go into the evening because of this effect and some people might have heard the term duck curve which is used to describe this hollowing out of demand. A new technology and distributed resources also brings a new challenges. There's the unknown unknowns in terms of understanding how all of these 
uh, new pieces of kit will interact and operate in times of extreme um, conditions. And, and this is something we're continually learning and being exposed to. Um, th traditional generation, thermal generation is, is also a concern for us. And uh, when we look at the, uh, our ESU modeling, which uh, Guy described earlier, uh, one of the inputs to that is the forced outage rate. So this is the uh, likelihood of a generator experiencing an outage. And we've seen over the last few years an increase in the forced outage rate from thermal um, plants. And uh, um, this is something which is obviously related to the aging of these plants. And um, we factored this into our ESU forecasts in, in forecasting the outlook for supply and demand. Um, in the recent heat wave on the right chart there is the um, performance of the brown coal generators over the Thursday and the Friday. And you can see that there's a steady decline through this period as we're dealing with a number of outages. So we had um, two Yulon units were out by the Friday and we had a Loyang A unit which was out on the Thursday and then de-rating of a second Loyang A unit which then was taken over service on the Friday evening after the worst of the heat had passed. Uh, even Loyang B experienced some de-rating during the middle of the afternoon on the um, Friday. So what all this leads us to, to sort of uh, conclude is, is really we're looking at a, a load shedding or unserved energy as a tail risk. And it's a low probability but potentially high consequence event. And you can see in the, in the chart here the shape of the tail and the area under the tail is a very small proportion of, uh, of time. It's only a, a few hours a year of, of risk that we're facing here. But the consequences can obviously be very high if people are without power during times of uh, extreme heat. And, and unlike network outages, which tend to be more distributed through the year to do with high winds and, and other sort of random events, uh, reliability type events are more associated with high temperatures and, and coincident outages. So tail risks are um, common in, in lots of areas and, and the usual way of managing tail risk is to procure insurance and, and really the RERT, the, uh, the reserve uh, trader, is a way of um, meeting that uh, risk through insurance. So we, we describe the tail risk as, as something which can be um, uh, delivered through procuring insurance and where it provides that insurance. Now obviously the cost of that is, is, a, is a key consideration and the cost of that should decide how much uh, insurance you are willing to procure. So what we're uh, advocating for is, uh, is a number of steps. So the integrated system plan uh, is uh, that Guy referred to earlier is a comprehensive plan for the NEM in terms of the outlook for uh, transmission and, uh, and supply and demand and, and there's a number of recommendations in the integrated system plan around uh, augmenting certain transmission lines and planning for a future which allows um, more integration of renewables and identification of renewable zones into the future. Uh, the second recommendation is around the level of the reliability standard and, and how that is set. The reliability standard is this 0.002% of, of USE, uh, unserved energy. 
And uh, there's currently a review being undertaken by the AER, the Australian Energy Regulator, to look at updating the numbers from the last time it was reviewed, which was in 2014. And so the results of that should be known by the end of the year, but we're uh, looking for that study to reveal um, um, what the tolerance is in the community for, for load shedding in today's society. Obviously, a lot's changed in the last five years. We suspect people are more dependent on their devices and their Wi-Fi and, and so on, and, uh, and it will be a, a very uh, useful bit of information to come out of that study in terms of informing the society's trade-off between the, the cost of load shedding and the tolerance for load shedding and the, and the cost of ameliorating that, which should form the basis of the reliability standard. And then the uh, last thing we're advocating for is strategic reserves, and so one of the um, challenges with, uh, with the RERT mechanism is it it's, can only be procured if the reliability standard is forecast to be met. So it's sort of an on-again, off-again type of trigger. And, uh, and really the question there is sort of have you considered all of the full range of risks uh, when you're making your assessment as to the outlook for the reliability. So we believe that a uh, strategic reserve will provide greater assurance for providers of these reserves to be able to make the necessary investments so that we then have uh, enough competition between reserve providers to be able to uh, lower costs and, uh, and uh, ensure that we have a competitive outcome. So uh, that's, uh, that's what we're recommending in terms of uh, addressing uh, the overall reliability issue. Thanks, Paul, for that insight into the sort of risks that you have to manage and the thinking that's applied to that delicate task. I saw a few members of the audience taking notes during your presentation, Paul, so I think there might be a few questions coming your way very soon. But before that, to our third speaker, Suzanne Falvey from the Australian Energy Market Commission, the body that sets the energy market rules. Suzanne's formal title is Executive General Manager, Security and Reliability at the AEMC. She brings a wealth of experience to her role. Suzanne is a former Senior Energy Policy Advisor to the ACT Government, in-house counsel at a solar technology R&D company, and a special counsel for Minter Ellison, specialising in, among other things, energy law and litigation. She now leads the team responsible for reviews and rule changes relating to the security and reliability of our electricity supply. So I'm guessing she's had a busy summer. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Suzanne Falvey. Thank you. <clears throat> So given the topic of today's event, I thought one of the things that I might um, talk to you about is what it is that the AMC is doing in terms of maintaining electricity reliability in the NEM. We have a very broad ranging and extensive security and reliability work program, but one of our projects is particularly topical to tonight's event, um, and it's to do with the Reserve Emergency Trader, the RERT. 
um, and that we have recently been looking at and have, as of last week, published our proposal for how it should be enhanced. So I think Guy alluded to this pie chart. Um, a version of, of this kind of breakdown of what is, what is, is, sorry, what causes blackouts has been part of our work program for over two years. We did the analysis of having a look at what it is that causes outages, uh, not only to provide context for our work and to inform the debate about what the solutions might be, but it's really important to identify the causes or the problems or the issues that need to be um, considered. And that's important because you want to develop a targeted solution to the actual problem. So the costs that we're incurring in meeting these problems are, are as limited as possible. So you can see from this pie chart, and it's something that the Grattan Report explored as well, that the majority of our outages are caused by faults on poles and wires, things that you see on your street. Um, and over the last decade, everyone's experienced firsthand the costs of trying to address that um, with this, you would have all heard of the concept of gold plating our networks and the fact that at the moment, sort of 50% of your retail bill is network costs. 3.2% of the outages that we suffer are a result of security events. And when we talk about security, we're talking about uh, the, whether there's been a technical fault on the system. So things like the system black event in South Australia is regarded as a security event. So when a lot of generation, generators trip, for example. But it's the 0.2% um, that is what we attribute to reliability, what it is that we're going to talk about, what I'm going to continue to talk about in terms of emergency reserves, of uh, the outages that you've experienced are when we have not had enough capacity in the system. So you can see that when we're talking about uh, reliability, and something sort of Guy outlined as well, we're talking about a very small percentage of the outages that um, have occurred while the NEM's been on foot. So, historically, we can see we've had a pretty good track record of reliability. Um, this graph actually sort of shows you the, the few areas where we have had um, unserved energy in excess of the reliability standard. Guy's already mentioned taking you through that there have only been a few days in the last decade and, and recently where we haven't had enough in the way of market reserves, and I'll come back to that, um, but also not enough emergency reserves either to avoid uh, load shedding. But as we've heard from Paul, the system is changing. We've always had, in as long as the NEM's been on foot, there's always been a regulatory mechanism that allows the operator to contract for emergency reserves. Prior to 2017, AEMO had only entered into RERT contracts three times, but had never actually used them. And this changed in 2017, when AEMO entered into a number of emergency reserve contracts. Since that time, RERT's been used on, in November 2017, January 2018, and most recently in January 2019. This increase in the use of this mechanism 
reflects a system with changing needs. There's a growing proportion of variable renewable generation, an aging fleet of thermal generation, tightening supply demand balance, peak year demand, and as we've seen, higher temperatures. So if we're gonna use this emergency reserve trader more often, we need to make sure it's fit for purpose. But it's helpful to understand how it is that emergency reserves fit into the broader reliability framework that we have on foot, the reliability framework that is intended to deliver capacity so we have energy when it is that we need it. In a reliable power system, and when I say that, a reliable power system is one in which investment and operation decisions of market participants such that they meet the reliability standard, which we've just heard is either 0.02% of unserved energy, or another way of putting it is that the demand for energy is met 99.998% of times. So in a reliable power system, the supply in the market usually includes a buffer, which we we'll refer to as in-market reserves. And that's made available to the market as part of the usual operation of the power system to meet the reliability standard. It's also driven by some of the way that generators get remunerated. So well, there are generators like to forward contract their, their output in order to lock in revenue certainty. And by contracting that way, they have particular incentives to make sure that when prices are high in the market, they are there. So when the system actually gives you the signal through the market that there's a need for energy, generators have every incentive to be available. When that supply-demand balance tightens and these, the spot market and the contract prices rise, this normally requires generators to either uh, to be on for longer and it generally provides a longer-term investment signal about getting more stuff in. This actually allows demand and supply to be kept in balance even in the face of shocks to the system. Now, AMO operates the system to meet the reliability, re reliability standard. Um, it makes, there's plenty of forecasts from 10 years out, as we've been hearing, right down to sort of two years and closer, and lots of modeling. And through this, it sends lots of information to the market on when it sees they're likely to be a shortfall in market reserves. The framework is set up that that information goes out to the market and the market is, is designed to respond. So when the market sees that there is a shortfall, that normally means that prices are going to go up. And so it allows generators to make certain calls, like if they have a, a another unit that is often a higher cost, less run unit, that perhaps they should make that available. If and the frameworks are set up so there is sufficient time for this. If in response to these market notices, there is no market response, that is when the market operator is, in, is engages emergency services. So they are additional reserves that are, they're utilizing generation and often demand response that are not otherwise available in the market and they're purchased through this mechanism. 
So, some of the thinking in terms of the uh, mechanism has also had to do with the reliability standard that you've had to uh, that you have heard about. We've actually, as part of this project, had to turn our minds to whether the reliability standard is is appropriate. And the Commission's view at, at in the draft proposal that is put out is that the reliability standard is appropriate. Um, however, we acknowledge that the system is changing and it is harder and somewhat more volatile to operate. This does not in and of itself mean that the reliability standard is no longer appropriate, but it does mean that we, how we operate the system may need to change. <clears throat> and in our draft proposal that we've put out, where we've put out the view as well that the current framework and how we're proposing that the emergency reserve trader be enhanced means there is flexibility and discretion for the market operator in how it incorporates the reliability standard in its day-to-day -day operations. So in the way that it models and forecasts the risks to the power system, it can adapt to the change. For example, if, if in fact the probability of how it is that you see these hotter temperatures are likely to impact on how often you expect unserved energy, a lot of how that modeling can be done is something that then can be reflected uh, in how the reliability standard is operationalized, and so the information that you send out to the market. But can't look to uh, the emergency reserve mechanism, even an enhanced one, to fix all the changing dynamics of the market. Emergency reserves are exactly that. They're there for emergencies because they are very, very expensive. We're actually looking to get sort of resources that aren't otherwise there much more expensive than, than the market reserves. So it is therefore, in order to make sure we have enough of the market reserves, very important that we have a well-functioning market, clear price signals and information backed up from policy certainty from governments and supported by other tools like the retailer reliability obligation that the Energy Security Board is currently working on. Given that we think there is a need to enhance the emergency reserve framework um, to make sure AMO has all the flexibility it needs to meet the operational challenges, last Thursday we published our draft determination and a draft rule outlining our proposal for how it is that this mechanism should be enhanced. This has got a little bit of a summary of the key elements. But importantly, some of the things that we're looking to do is to make sure in terms of how the costs of those emergency reserves are covered, are recovered, that they're recovered from those who actually uh, caused the need to use those emergency reserves in, that, in the time that they were dispatched. Um, also increasing the transparency around how it is that the RERT is used. We're looking to make sure that there's enough information that is provided uh, to the market on how and when it used and how much it costs, and that's because these costs are not insignificant, and when, when market customers need to pay for them, uh, they need to actually be able to budget for them. Um, we've also clarified the trigger. So the road can be triggered if AMO forecasts a breach of the reliability standard, so we're making very clear that it is a safety net and if the reliability standard isn't met then, then emergency reserves can be procured but in the meantime be looking to the market to answer that. 
We've also increased the lead time that AMO has got in order to procure these reserves from nine to 12 months. So that should mean that um, there's a greater pool from a greater pool of providers from which the market operator can source some of these reserves, um, including demand response providers. And hopefully that leads to lower costs of these emergency reserves. Also including there a price guide. So when AEMO tenders and puts reserve, um, emergency reserve providers on their panel, um, they do so through a competitive process. We're suggesting that there be a guide. Um, so the price should typically be less than the cost of load shedding. So again, trying to make sure that there is enough flexibility, but within certain cost parameters. And of course, we've strengthened the out-of-market provisions, um, which is very, because emergency reserves are additional to market reserves that are not otherwise in the market, and we're making very clear what it means that what it means to be in the market or out of the market and by only letting providers enter into contracts for emergency reserves that have not been in the market for 12 months. It avoids, their, uh, it avoids developing an out-of-market market for these services. So you don't necessarily want people moving from the market into an out-of-market market because they can get more money there. We want to have as much reserves as possible in the market. Gives you a very quick overview of what that um, draft proposal is about. As I mentioned, it was out for publication last Thursday and the submissions close on that on the 21st of March. So if you're interested, I encourage you to have a look and get involved. We love getting as many submissions as possible. Thank you. Thanks very much, Suzanne. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as you can see, we have here three of the sharpest minds in Australian energy policy, and they're now available to take your questions. But the panellists won't be surprised to know that I've got a few questions of my own, uh, which I hope won't take too much of your time. I want to ask Guy first, please. I thought you might kick to me first, Paul. Would I be right in saying, Guy, that a sort of neat summary of really all the presentations tonight is that Australia's energy system is inherently less reliable because we're making this grand transition from old coal to new renewables. And if that is the case, does that suggest, as some argue, that we should slow down the transition? I would say, Paul, that the it's the transition itself, like any period of change, creates uncertainty and, and clearly the market needs to deal with that. But I don't think it's inherent to the transition from one type of technology to another necessarily. I still think the, the key factor is that sudden change in the balance in the market that occurred when Hazelwood closed. Mm -hmm. And that was due, obviously, to the age of the plant. Um, but it was, the, it was the short notice of that closure. So clearly, you can't build very much at all in five months, uh, which was about the notice of closure. So that would shock any market, even one that wasn't in transition, unless it had a lot of buffer sitting there in the first place. But when you layer, I guess, the inherent technical complexity of having new types of technology and the sorts of operational challenges that Paul was talking about, yes, it does that ma make that task harder. 
but certainly in our view, um, those challenges are not insurmountable, provided the politics of climate change can be resolved and, and to create that, that certainty for investors. So let me ask the market operator and the rule maker, given they're here, I'll take the opportunity about, uh, I want to reflect on the two big shocks to the system of our recent memory, which Guy mentioned, the South Australian blackout of 2016 statewide and the Hazelwood rather rapid closure in 2017. What lessons had to be learnt from each of those two shocks and have the lessons been learnt? First to you, Paul. Um, with the South Australian uh, blackout, we obviously have had very extensive um, reports on that and very extensive review by the AER of AMO's actions during that event. Mm. And it's been a, a case study in terms of learning um, a lot about how the system works in, in these types of events. And we have put in place many new initiatives since then to strengthen the system. And you only have to look at the frequency that we're having to direct in South Australia for um, uh, system strength as, as an example mm -hmm. of AMO being on the front foot and, and managing these events now. So we're, we are certainly uh, taking a very proactive response to dealing with these. Um, Hazelwood, I mean, at the time we uh, were consulted on before I joined and uh, advised that uh, Hazelwood um, would be able to close and uh, the, the, the effect of Hazelwood is to remove base load and, and if we're looking at the requirements of the system, we're looking at uh, a few hours a year of requirement for capacity. And so there's, there's not a necessarily a good match there between base load and provision of capacity. So I think um, from AMO's point of view, the, the concern is we need to make sure we have adequate reserves to be able to deal with the increasing risk in the system. And those reserves should obviously be the lowest cost that we can procure. And we need to make sure that the market signals are there for the market to respond. Mm -hmm. But we also need the safety net uh, to make sure that we can handle unexpected and unforeseen uh, events. And Suzanne, from your perspective, what lessons had to be learned? And maybe what lessons are still to be learned? So as, um, as Paul mentioned, the regulator finished its uh, reporting into the incident at the end of last year and this has triggered for the Commission its own work that it now needs to do have uh -huh. a look at the investigation into that and see as a result of that what bits of our framework may no longer be fit for purpose or may well need to be updated in uh -huh. order to address some of these increasing security issues that we're seeing Paul mentioned um, AMO is having to direct on a lot of our synchronous generators in South Australia in order to meet security needs. This is a very new and evolving problem and it's something that we've been giving some thought to, have in the last two years developed some frameworks in order to address some of how it is that you make sure you have minimum levels of some of these security services in there. Um, but it is definitely something with the market operator we're keenly focused on in terms of what it is that now needs to change in order to keep up with keep up with the transition. Because in relation to the question you asked to uh, that you asked Guy, mm. of can we slow this down? I'm not quite sure that we can. Yep. Um, 
So it is about sort of keeping up and doing things uh, that are necessary and targeted. And in relation to Hazelwood, um, uh, as a result of that, we actually, the Commission got a project in which we have now set up this requirement for three-year closure, sorry, notice of three-year uh -huh. closure. So generators now will need to give uh, notice three years out that they're likely to close, that information goes out to the market. So we're hopeful that we won't be caught unawares again. Okay. okay. Paul, could I just jump Going. in on that? Um, just, just in case um, people are not clear in the audience. So Suzanne made that distinction between security and reliability events. And, and that distinction is, is not an arbitrary one. So um, in a sense, the summer blackout, the, the heat wave, lack of generation capacity issue is, is very much confined to those very hot days in summer in, in Australian experience. And, um, and is, if you like, um, you know, the, the type of event that happened uh, very recently. Those security events in that different category, of which the South Australian blackout was one, mm -hmm. can really happen at any time. And they happen in response um, very commonly to network breakages in the, in the high voltage network, uh, or lightning strikes, and occasionally trips of generators. So they're very different things than they have. Bush fires, tornadoes. Bush fires, absolutely, you name it. And they have very different solutions. So it's important that we keep that distinction in our minds. Um, the South Australian blackout happened on a day that had a maximum temperature of 20 degrees. Mm. Um, the maximum temperature, obviously, in, on the 25th of January was 40 plus, uh, mm. 46 in South Australia on the 24th of January. So they're very different problems and they have very different um, solutions. Um, and, and our report looks at all of those. Indeed. Thanks, Guy. So I'm going to open it up to questions from you, our audience. If you'd like to ask a question, uh, drill deeper into the expertise of our panellists or indeed take on something that they've said, now's your chance. Please raise your hand and if you get the call, please wait for a microphone to get to you. And could I ask that everyone please be as brief as possible. We're looking to get through as many questions as possible and we're looking for questions rather than statements. And I'll begin up the back with the gentleman towards the right. Thanks. Um, yeah, thanks for great presentations. Um, I work with the Australia Institute. My name's Mark Ogue, and we monitor the uh, output of solar PV um, as against total demand for the various states. And there's a couple of references to solar um, pushing forward the peaks, heatwave peaks into the early evening, but when you look at it, it actually tends to reduce them by around 500 megawatts for New South Wales and uh, Queensland pretty consistently. So it tends to reduce that peak, so it's lower than it otherwise would have been. And also, you would have reached that level that you've had the blackouts and load shedding several hours earlier without solar. So uh, there's a bit of a, what we would consider a bit of a misperception that solar is um, adding to the problems of reliability when in fact we'd see it as actually bolstering <coughs> reliability when it's most needed on those hot days. I was just wondering if you could comment on that. Paul, could I ask you to address that as sort of um, a plea for understanding of solar? Yeah, no, that's a very good point and, and we did address the impact of rooftop PV in the paper that we um, put in for our 
uh, to support our enhanced route um, rule change proposal. Uh, and the effect, as you say, has been to reduce maximum demand. So over the, this is why these, these two days, which we saw recently, were not maximum demands. Uh, they, the highest uh, demands that we've had in Victoria and South Australia were a number of years ago. And solar PV has played a positive role in reducing maximum demands. But the, the impact is to move it into the evening. And as it moves later and later in the day, then the marginal benefit of solar starts to to fall away and at some point you get to a point where it's it's not really going to give you anything more so it's given us a lot of benefits so far um the other factor just to consider is if if you are getting that benefit of solar reducing demands and then suddenly these sort of clouds come over then you can swing quite quickly back to uh, high demand paul Guy? i might just add quickly to that i think i think your facts are spot on i think just in terms of how you interpret it, I think it's important to remember that, particularly over the time frame of a number of years, um, people in the market respond to circumstances. So it's probably fair to say that generation generation investment would be different if there wasn't rooftop PV. So it's not a you can't hold everything else constant, particularly over longer time frames. So um, you know, I think it's undeniably true that rooftop PV has pushed those peaks later. But um, but I think it's also fair to say that the market might look different if we if we didn't have that. So it's it, you've just got to be a bit careful in terms of how you interpret those events. Okay, I'm going to make this difficult by nominating the gentleman three rows back, right in the middle. If we could get a microphone to this guy. Thank you. Uh, my question's for Guy. I'm interested. Uh, for a bit of clarification, are you saying that the government should cancel the Snowy Hydro 2.0 project? Is it a bad move? Good question, Guy. So there's, there's a few issues with the Snowy 2.0 project. Uh, one is a lack of transparency. So we, we don't know whether it makes sense as a commercial project or whether it is a politically motivated project. It would be lovely to have more information so that um, we can make a genuine call on that. Of course, if it stacks up, we should build it. My sense is that it may not, but particularly it's, and that's because I struggle to imagine that a private investor would commit to such a large and risky project at a time where the market is, is in the middle of such a rapid transition. So pumped hydro absolutely has a role in the market of the future. Does 2000 megawatts of pumped hydro have a role in the market of 2025? That's a very different question. And to me, this is a very risky government, uh, very big, big part of very, <laughs> Can we edit that out? What do you um, mean? What do you mean by that, guy? To me, this is a very risky project, and not one that I could see a private investor committing to at a time where you have rapid reductions in battery technology, rapid changes in technology across the whole market. So, we certainly aren't offering a cut and dried view, but I think from a point of view of reliability, it's this behemoth coming down the line that does make it very hard for investors to address the immediate gap that the market needs to be addressed. Thanks, Guy. I'll make it easy this time. The woman just here who's got the microphone. Um, I had a question for Paul from AEMO. It was reported in the media that the projected demand um, on the Victorian event was the projections were lower than what actually occurred and demand was a lot higher than expected. Are you able to share uh, any reasons for what happened? How much can you tell us, Paul, about January 25 in Melbourne? Because we remember it. 
Yes, uh, well, it's still subject to our um, report that we're working on producing to explain exactly what happened. And there's there's other people in AMO who are closer to this than I am and are better able to explain it. But, um, but you can tell us a bit more. <laughs> but, uh, so the reported demand would have been affected by obviously the degree of load shedding and, um, and the... Um, the quantification of the actual amount of load shedding is, is not a straightforward thing. So even when we call RERT, we might call a certain number of megawatts, but then the RERT provider only gets paid based on their actual metering data. So there's a ex post analysis required to determine the meter data versus what they record, and then they only get paid for what they provided. So there's not able to, at the moment, explain uh, what the level of demand was, but that will be the subject of our report. Do you know anything more about it, Guy, from the public accounts and uh, what's known on the public record? Was this an unfortunate cascade of events or should it not have happened? Uh, so to the particular question of the forecast, I can't shed any more light. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think I don't have a lot to say other than it is that combination of high temperature. You know, it was a hot day, hot overnight and that um, temp demand picked up very early in the morning uh, with those coal outages that obviously saw the system short of um, supply. And that was despite the fact, so you, you recall that it was very hot in South Australia on Thursday evening. It was not so hot on the Friday. And actually quite a lot of power flowed from South Australia into Victoria on mm -hmm. Friday. And yet it still wasn't enough. So, so clearly the system was under a lot of strain that day. A couple of questions right from the front. First of all, the lady just here. Ah, uh, thanks for that. Considering, probably more for Suzanne and to a lesser extent for Paul, um, considering the the governmental issues and, and the polar opposites of the two parties that we have at the moment, how much is that going to affect your forward planning? So if you're looking at forecasting and rule changes, I mean, they've got very different policies that they're looking at putting in place after May or whenever it is they decide they want to do that. Uh, how much does that impact what it is that you're looking at putting in place now? Good question, Suzanne. Yep. What happens if there's a change of government? Maybe when? Right. So I, I might take that on to to explain a little bit about the Commission itself. Please. So the Commission is a policy advisor to government, government of, of the day, and we're, we're independent in that sense. So yes, we do market design and, and we also provide advice. Um, the work program that we have on foot is one that has been on, in terms of security and reliability, has been on foot for quite some time and is unlikely to change as well. So we process a lot in the way of rule change requests. There are, there are many rules that underlie both the electricity and gas markets. They are open to anyone to submit a change and when they have been submitted to us, we are required by law to see that process through. So it is very much an independent process. Um, we, like uh, the market operator and the regulator, uh, work through and with the ESB. And so the ESB at the moment is developing the retailer reliability obligation, which you might otherwise known as the other non-emissions half of the NEG. Um, and there has been a very clear uh, decision by the COAG Energy Council to actually have that done and in place by 1 July 2019, so, so pretty, pretty soon. Um, and I can't see 
that changing. And it's, it's incredibly important as well. It's a really important backup to make sure that retailers are prioritizing reliability in the way that they should. Um, and I, I can't see anybody changing that as a, as a priority. Thanks, Suzanne. And Paul, I am interested, is it, does it make your job harder, the, the prospect of an imminent change of federal government? Uh, it makes my specific job harder because I've been working on the retail reliability obligation, which is half of the NEG, and Labor's policy is to bring back the emissions part of the NEG Indeed. and see if they can sit down with the coalition once they're in opposition and, and get agreements to implement that. So uh, given that I did some work on that, I may very well be uh, unable to shake free of the NEG for a while. <laughs> Paul, Paul just end up working more. <laughs> Uh, we have another question down the front just here, please. Thanks very much. Uh, Tenant Reid from the Australian Industry Group. Um, while we've all been uh, hearing a lot uh, over the past couple of years about big P politics of energy, uh, along the margins there's been a lot of reports of tensions between the uh, AEMC and the AEMO over visions of reliability in particular. Are your organisations at war or in creative tension? Okay, fight it out. Who, go, who goes first? You go first, Paul. Do, do we look like we're at war? <laughs> Suzanne? Um, in, in, indeed. I mean, I, I appreciate the, the plenty of media reporting that has been out there about that, but um, especially in the reliability and security space, we need to collaborate very intensively. There is no point in coming up with a change to the rules framework that doesn't actually work technically. So we do need to work hand in hand. Um, do we have robust discussions? Of course. Uh, in my presentation, you know, I, I outlined that we have been talking about the reliability standard and its appropriateness, but th that is what collaboration is about. And we have plenty of joint work programs. Um, and to the extent that there are rule change requests that the market operator put in, they worked on together. It's what the three market bodies do actually a lot of at the moment. And it's just part and parcel of what we need to do in order to make this transition happen. You need to sort of chunk it down bit by bit and work out what needs to change and how we do that. And it works best when the three of us are working well together. I think we can describe that as an impeccable forward defence straight there. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very sorry, but we are out of time. I want, however, to squeeze one quick final question in myself, if I may. Guy, Suzanne and Paul, I want to ask you this. If we were to reconvene here in, let's say, five years' time. Same panel, same venue, same topic. Do you think we'd be talking about an energy system that's even better and more reliable than today, or worse and less reliable? There you go, an easy one to finish. First to you, Guy. I think the market has a strong track record of responding and investing when required. And so I think governments only need to throw them a little bit of certainty and they'll latch onto that and, and respond very quickly. I think there's a massive difference between the Liddell closure with seven years notice and the Hazelwood closure mm -hmm. with five months notice. And I think in five years time, we'll be laughing at how vexed we got about the closure of Liddell and how easily we replaced it. But I do think that we need governments to come to the party. 
Suzanne, what's your uh, crystal ball like? I, f I feel like I've just answered that question beforehand. <laughs> um, but, uh, and it perhaps it isn't necessarily obvious to everyone the, the, the extent of the work that's being done in order to address these security and, re and in particular reliability concerns as well. So the governance that we have in the energy sector is such that you have a market system operator, you have a regulator, you actually have a rule maker. And we all have our roles and we're collaborating really well. And I sort of think that um, in light of the fact that we're going to continue to do that, we're all working at a rate of knots to make sure that we're facilitating the transition on foot. I'd like to think in five years time we'll reflect well um, with a market that's responding, has got the kind of clear signals and incentives that it needs and, and think, I'm glad we got through that bit. Paul, tell me this is true, we're heading for a better future? Um, certainly, if we're reconvening in five years' time to discuss this, I'll be looking for more Paul Austins on the panel <laughs> to have a more balanced discussion. Um, I think the, the underlying risks will continue to be there. Uh, we, we expect the temperatures to be uh, continuing on their warming trends. We expect the ageing uh, generation to continue to be uh, suffering challenges. But hopefully within the next five years we should be seeing some investments uh, coming through and whether that's driven by governments or whether it's driven by market investments um, that will be helpful in, in managing the reliability of the system. I think the other thing which will is a source of potential value going forwards is demand response and we're working very closely with the ENA and others on promoting our open networks uh, initiative and we're looking for, um, over that five years, the maturity of the demand response to evolve and to be a, a much more important part of the system and, mm. and with the distributed energy resources, the batteries and the rooftop PVs, better coordination of that will help us to manage the risks in the system. Paul, Suzanne, Guy, thank you all very much. Now, before we finish, can I please just say a quick thank you to a couple of people. I want to thank Susie and the staff of the State Library. I've said it before and I'll say it again because it's true. The library is one of the things that makes Melbourne one of the greatest cities in the world. And it's a real privilege for us at the Grattan Institute to have such a close partnership with the State Library of Victoria. I want to thank Megan French. Megan is Grattan Institute's events guru. And events like this can only happen because of her hard work. So thank you, Megan. And thank you to you, our audience, for coming out on this surprisingly chilly summer evening. How ironic. Thank you for your interest, your engagement and your questions. Please keep in touch with us at the Grattan Institute on our website. And please keep a lookout for future policy pitch events here at the State Library. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, Please join me in thanking our panel of experts, Guy Dundas, Paul Austin, and Suzanne Falvey. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous, and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.
grattan.org.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.